Publishing for Profit podcast is brought to you by Ghostwriters and Co. Earn more money by publishing better content and learn how to increase your thought leadership so you can build your brand. Head over to ghostwritersandco.com for more information. That's ghostwritersandco.com. And now, your host, Joel Mark Harris. Hello, and welcome to the Publishing for Profit podcast. This is your host, Joel Mark Harris. We're on episode number 38 today, and we interview Michael Cofino, who is a memoirist and ghostwriter. He started his career co-writing a book with Joan Barnes, who is the founder of Jimboree, which is a multi-million dollar corporation. There was a fascinating story which he talks about in the interview. He is also a former lawyer and basketball coach, and he talks about both those former lives. It's a great interview. We talk a lot about different subjects, about his writing, about what he learned, uh, both as a coach and as a ghostwriter. So hopefully you enjoy this episode. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm awesome. I want to start because you were a successful lawyer, successful basketball coach, and then you made the transition into writing. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to make that pivot? I mean, the short story is that um, writing was always important to me. Uh, you know, the firm that I kind of grew up with as a lawyer was renowned for their legal writing. I became a writing coach uh, during my legal career, um, published various articles on the law, I had a burning desire to be a professional writer someday. It wasn't, didn't burn very bright at first, you know, but over time, as I got tired of practicing law, it became more prominent and I began to have ideas. And I, you know, eventually you know, I was doing that in parallel with my coaching career. So as a practical matter, even though ideas were percolating and I had some book ideas, uh, projects I wanted to do, I, it wasn't really practical. I mean, it, it, to have three professions was just not a... A little bit too much option. for you? Yeah. So, and I, you know, I, I was busy. I mean, just coaching and practicing law, well, you can imagine. It's, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I, as I approached 60... I knew I had to, you know, find the courage to make a clean break. I wasn't going to be able to juggle. Um, and at that time, I had a, a, a book of fiction in my mind. And I also had started on a book on basketball, which I ultimately did write and publish later. Um, but I got into a relationship uh, with a woman um, who, and you mentioned her in your email, Joan Barnes, who was the founder of Jim Marie. And at the time... I was with her in the beginning, she was on the speaking circuit. And she kept getting, she had a fascinating story, just a powerful, powerful story. And she kept getting requests for, where's your book, where's your book? And um, I was at that point focused on um, one of my basketball athletic books. And she asked me if I'd be willing to help her, you know, basically co-write her memoir. Mm. Um, so I thought about it and I thought, okay, that, that would be fun. You know, it's, it's part of the relationship and, and her story was just a mind blow. So, um, I decided to shelve the projects I had in mind and I wrote, I co-wrote that with her. And so that got me into the professional writing market, essentially. And the interesting thing about it, of course, is I had never contemplated being a ghostwriter or a memoir writer. Um, but that experience and, and, you know, really catapulted me into a place where I felt, well, this is fun. This is storytelling of a different sort. And, um, you know, we had a good time doing it. We worked really hard. It was, it was a true collaboration. Um, you know, Joan used to talk about the, quote, union voice that we developed in the, in the narrative. And so that experience got me to think about being a ghostwriter, and I, and I built it there. I still had my other books I wanted to write, but memoir started to become and is now my sort of bread and butter in terms of my writing, in terms of the kind of, you know, in terms of monetization of my writing career. 
is what I do now. Is you know, I mean, I do all. I still edit, and I do all the things I mentioned earlier: agent query, publisher query stuff, proposals, and a lot. But memoir writing is is my staple right now. So that's how I got into it. So have you always has becoming a writer something that you've always wanted to do? since you know you're like i guess an early age or is that something that you developed later in life interesting question because i don't think i ever fancied myself as a professional writer but i always liked doing it and um when i was in college and even a little bit younger uh, i was fascinated with the victorian books particularly you know charles dickens and books of that nature and i got caught up a lot with the uh, polysyllabic expressions. And so I, I built a huge vocabulary. And I, when I wrote in college, I wrote, I overwrote, you know. I as as I most had, college students do, yeah. And <laughs> Pretty common. I, had a, I had an English teacher in college who was became a mentor to me who told me that he was going to save something I wrote to show it to me in 30 years. <laughs> Um, and he, he, I mean, I got the point at the time. Um, I wish I, I wish I, he had that now, but, and, but I, it, so I, I used to show off to me, it was sort of like a, a hobby that gave me personal satisfaction, but I never really dreamed of making it a career. It wasn't until I started practicing law and did so much legal writing and so much editing and so much coaching of young attorneys in writing. And I began to write roasts for people, you know, to celebrate anniversaries and birthdays. They became very popular. And so I began to build momentum in my career to identify myself that way. So I don't think it was anything that I, I really didn't have the life mission to do until later on when I said, oh, wow, this is, this is I can do this. I can do this permanently. Can you tell us a little, so Joan uh, Barnes is the founder of uh, Jimboree, I believe it's called. I have never actually heard of that brand, but, you know, doing some research, it's actually quite, it's quite a big brand and and there's a lot of buzz around it. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about that experience and, you know, I guess, you know, you kind of throw maybe into the deep end a little bit. but it probably in the best way in terms of how to, you know, write and publish a, a big book like that. I knew of Jimboree, of course. Um, it was most people in the United States at that time knew of Jimboree. Um, and I, I think, I think our kids might've gone early through some sessions. The, the writing of the book was, first of all, I didn't know her story. Mm. And in a nutshell, as you may, may know now, she founded Jimboree essentially in a church basement and developed it into an international brand. And then had a big fall because she was, she was bulimic. She had an eating disorder and she basically had to leave the company and she was gone for treatment for a couple of years. And she was out of the company and it then went public. Um, And then she came back to California and developed all these um, yoga studios, which eventually she sold to Yoga Works, which is a national brand of yoga uh, studios. But what people didn't really know about her, about that journey, and what I was most impressed with, I mean, other than the fact that she obviously overcame you know, these personal challenges was that she was essentially the original mompreneur. Um, she founded Jimboree in the early 70s and she developed a, a, a business model through franchises that allowed women to own and operate their own businesses while also raising kids. Mm. And you know, what she did for, for, for women in that regard is, is really not talked about enough. And to me, the writing of the, that was the thing about the book I loved the most was obviously the journey was special and all that, but what she did for that market to provide those opportunities for women that early on, 70s and 80s, I thought was, it's really remarkable. Um, you know, the, the experience of writing the book was great because it happened to coincide with the 40th anniversary of Jim Bree. 
<laughs> which meant, as it turned out, that Jim Bree financed uh, our national book tour. Hmm. Oh, nice. So we got to go all over the country, the bookstores and other places, like the 92nd Street Y in New York, and put on panel discussions or book readings and Q&A and that sort of thing. Um, and then, in addition, Jim Bree sold um, its play division, the original uh, business model, to a, a Singaporean company who then brought us to China for a cruise um, where we, you know, Joan was fetid. I mean, it was an amazing experience. So the combination of the launch with the book tour and, and the cruise to China was very special. And, and then I guess that opened up a bunch of doors for you. Um, yes, what, what, um, what did you do with, I mean, you probably learned a lot about publishing and, and promotion. That must have been a lot different from uh, your life as a lawyer slash coach. Um, what, I guess, what did you learn along the way that helped you uh, catapult your ghostwriting career? That's a really interesting question because um, I was completely naive about the, the workings of the literary industry. Um, you know, one of the things I learned, which you know well, is that writing the book is step one. It's the easiest step, <laughs> Yeah, I like to say. The, the, getting an agent or a publisher or both and marketing and promoting your book is an entirely different universe. And you know, I have since that time, you know, obviously learned a lot about that. Um, so that was the, that was the biggest eye opener. And, and, and in connection with that was that it was a, um, set a buyer's market that the competition for agents, the competition for publishers was so keen that you really had to be realistic about your chances. And every time I, I have this conversation with all my memoir clients now, of course, you know, because some of them, you know, I got a you know, bestseller, I, I want to make some money. And I don't really discourage them heavily, but I basically keep it low key, tell them what I think uh, and try to encourage their passion. But, I, but it's really the memoir experience set me on a path to learn um, how to operate in, in the literary business, which is, you know, as you know, pretty complicated and not easy at all. The other thing is, um, once I started to get memoir clients, um, I began to understand better the best way to approach the projects because uh, every client is different. Every client has their sort of dark side. Every client has secrets buried. Every client has their own sensibilities. And um, you really have to be, I think, committed to the craft and to the client to do a good job. You know, one of the things that you, you would ask me in an email, I'll just kind of segue there if you want, is one of the great things about being a lawyer and then a ghostwriter or a memoirist was that as a lawyer, I learned about client service. Mm. And I was talking to someone not too long ago about this, that I think ghostwriters sometimes forget that they're in the service business. Mm. Um, you know, we're, yes, we have a professional craft and we're good at it. And we love seeing our work appear on the page, but we're servicing a client. And when I was young as a lawyer, I developed um, a motto, which was every client is the only client. Mm -hmm. And that, that arose from my experience in working at a big law firm that, that not only served Fortune 100 companies, but also small, smaller companies and individuals and even did a lot of pro bono work. And you could easily lose sight of the fact that every client is as valuable in terms of the quality of your service as, as every other one. And I, so that, that was the other thing that I, I found important in uh, becoming a ghostwriter is really accepting my client where they stand mm. and servicing them and not forgetting that I am really, they are the, they are the principal and I am the agent and I'm serving them. Yeah, no, I think that is definitely a good 
thing to keep in mind for sure. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your writing routine and how you like to write, where you like to write, um, and, and where you get your ideas from? Actually, two different questions. That's a, yeah, I, I kind of threw a lot. That's yeah, okay. So. I, like, I like the question. Well, I mean, I am a creature of habit, I, I'm going to have to admit. Um, and I do have a basic routine. Um, but my, I will say, first of all, that my routine doesn't really respect the boundaries of, of the days and nights. You know? <laughs> um, I, and I mean, seriously, sometimes I say, oh, it's the weekend. I don't even realize it's the weekend. Um, but I do have a routine, and that is I, I write early in the morning to begin. I want to get a couple of hours in, maybe three if I can, before nine o'clock or so, because then I go into my exercise program. So I'll exercise. I do a number of different things in the mornings, generally speaking. And then I'll come back and then I'll work again until four or five o'clock. Whether I work at night again, a third time after dinner, depends on, you know, if I'm with my partner or I'm tired or what it is, but I will work at night too. And sometimes uh, deep into the night. I also, um, if I wake up and I do this a lot, I should point out at two o'clock, in the morning, 2.30 in the morning. It used to be if I had an idea for a, a book, I would say, okay, I'll, I'll remember in the morning. I don't do that anymore. Yeah. I get up, I go to the computer, and I put whatever idea I had on paper. And if I feel like I, that's kept me up, I'll stay up or I'll go back to bed. But I do, I do get a lot of thought during the middle of the night. I did, did it this morning. I did it this morning. Um, and I wrote... It's almost a legal piece, a piece of legal writing, but, it, but I get, but I want to ask you, ask, answer your other question. I love it is, and this is, the, this is so literal. I get most of my ideas when I'm not writing. I get most of the really insightful ideas, uh, scenes, ways of, ways of expressing stuff. Uh, when I'm hiking, I, am a, I hike regularly in addition to other things to exercise and I find that hiking opens me up to the creative realm um, habitually. And, you know, I've got, for example, the t titles to my books have come to me on hikes. Um, so obviously when you're writing, you're, you're coming up with stuff, but I mean, in terms of, you know, really uh, outside the box, creative thoughts. I get them when my mind is the most relaxed, and that's usually when I'm hiking. And so you've you've written a couple books that draw inspiration from your career as a coach. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit why that part of your life is so important? Well, I think. Tell you about a conversation I had with an athletic director uh, when I was writing my second of my three sports books. I was interviewing him for the book. Um, he was really moved by what I was doing, and he said, "You know, we, we coaches we get into it for a lot of different reasons, but at the end of the day, <clears throat> it's really important that we give back um, to the coaching community." to the athletic community in whatever ways, you know, that are suitable for us. And I think that um, my coaching career, by the way, there was another thing I backed into. I've backed into so many different things, you know. Um, even going to law school, I backed into that. It was, it was complete happenstance. You know, I was, I was coaching uh, middle school girls just to help out to school, and I got a call to coach high school, and I was – I took it, and I, I was in the high school market. Um, I played basketball as a kid, so the coaching books, the athletic books, are really an extension of my passion for the game and for athletics. But um, I wrote those books to contribute. You know, I, you know, I don't pretend to say I've got, you know, the best things to say. I mean, but um, I do a lot of storytelling in all my books. Um, my books are very different from each other. You know, the one I'm most proud of is the book on high school athletics, uh, which it's which did actually I could say ran number one on Amazon for a couple of weeks for youth sports. But that one I think is the most profound. And the important thing about that book is the value systems that 
um, I argue um, are prevalent in well thought out uh, athletic programs that serve kids at the high school and really at the college level, but at the high school level in particular, in terms of preparing them for adulthood. And I make the case, I think in a powerful way, both the research, my own sort of experiences and storytelling that high school athletics, um, competitive athletics, prepares uh, student athletes for, for life in ways that the classroom, the traditional classroom does not and could not ever do. And so that particular book I'm, I'm really proud of because I think it, it really contributes to, uh, and it is particularly relevant now, COVID, um, with, with all those programs sort of waylaid, um, I'm thinking about doing a second promotion on that book because of, as soon as we turn the corner on this pandemic. But I, but just to answer your question, I think the values that are inherent in the books I've written uh, and, and the instructive parts of it is sort of legacy-based from my standpoint and a contribution that I feel happy I've made. So that's the most important thing about those books to me. So, uh, so you mentioned that athletics teaches kids stuff that you know normal classroom don't teach can you elaborate on that like and how does uh, athletics um, prepare people for adulthood well it all obviously depends on the athletic program that they have I mean uh, there are there are athletic programs and there are athletic programs right so mm -hmm. one of the things I advocate and I actually have a model mission statement in the book that I urge athletic directors to look at, but I, but, but I advocate that athletic programs should be value-based. That is, they should reflect the values you want your athletes to acquire and nurture and embrace forever, whether it's empathy, whether it's um, how to fit into a team concept, so we, which, which applies to the employment world, um, how to embrace the world. Um, how to support each other, learning how to effectively communicate. Um, and, and give you an example. One of the research things I learned when I was writing that book was that if push came to shove between candidates, employers tended to favor employment candidates who had athletic backgrounds because they, athletes are taught to stay in the game, to, to persevere, to not give up, to work within the team concept, to understand their role, and so on and so forth. So the book has several chapters, each of which is de de devoted to a, to a character trait. Um, leadership, for example, empathy, and character development, communication, um, things that, community citizenship. You know, for example, if you think about it, the most public presence of a high school is its athletic program typically they're out in the community people come to see them play they go on road trips they're out there and so one of the things that a value-based program can do is teach kids good citizenship um i took one of my girls teams before i coached boys i coached girls for several years in high school and i took um one of my girls teams to a tournament a sleepaway tournament up north in Northern California. And I got an email when I got back from the host school telling me how impressed they were with how the girls, my girls behaved, how polite they were, how considerate they were, how easy they were to deal with. And of course I read that to the girls and they were very proud because we were stressing the importance of, you know, going up there, we, we are the ambassadors for our school. You are the ambassadors for your parents and your families. What we do reflects on us, them, and the larger community we represent. So these are the kinds of things that most of them are not found in the classroom. Some of them, there's some overlap, there's some overlap. Um, and then there's the physical aspect. I talk about diet, I talk about physical conditioning. Um, I talk about, for example, the onset of yoga now in athletic programs. So 
well thought out conscientious athletic programs have a plethora of dimension that um, allows them to really lay a great foundation for the future for these kids. And you're just not going to get that in the classroom. I'll get pushback on that. You know, my book, which is called, by the way, The Other Classroom, um, the first chapter responds to a, uh, an Atlantic Magazine article that was very negative about high school athletics. Mm. And um, I, take them, I take that article on frontally and, and, um, as, a, as an opening chapter. So there are other, there are, you know, detractors out there. Mm. You know? Look, every, there are programs out there that have failed, that have lost their way, that have had the wrong kind of values dominating their decision-making. But by and large, high school athletics is a font of opportunity to help these kids develop. Hmm. I see a parallel between athletics and writing. Yes, you know, with athletics, you have discipline. You were talking about communication earlier about not uh, giving up. And I think those are very valuable uh, attributes as a writer as well. Do you also see a um, parallel between the two? Um, and if you do, can you comment on that? Well, one thing I didn't mention, by the way, which skipped my head, is probably the most important um, attribute that I used to stress, anyway, as a coach, is self-advocacy. You know, one of the problems we have today is, um, and you know, it, it, there have been books and articles written about this galore about, you know, parent helicopter parents and how they interfere with athletic programs and how politicized the process can be. I mean, I, I've been through that in spades. Um, but, and what gets lost sometimes in those environments is the importance of kids advocating for themselves. I, I, I could tell you stories forever about that. You know, when you're, when you're in, in a, a client relationship writing memoir, um, you have, to, you have to find a way to get your client to, to sort of lead the way without knowing that they're doing it and to embrace their history, embrace who they are, and be abashed in their expression and be unafraid you know, to confront, you know, whatever things in the past. Because I've been in memoir sessions where tears were shared often. And it's not an easy process. I had a client who was really close to the vest emotionally and I just couldn't get him to advocate for himself in terms of who he was. Mm -hmm. um, and eventually we got there, but it was such a struggle. And so I think the other thing about athletics and writing is, is you mentioned it earlier is communication as a coach. And if you don't get this as a coach, you're, you're not going to last long in the business. You have to understand the sensibilities of each of your athletes. You could talk to some athletes one way, but not another. You know, you, you have to know how best to reach them, um, how to listen to them, uh, especially for you know the teenage at the teenage level. Same thing with clients. You know, one of the things that and the, and the legal business, my legal experience is helpful here too, is how do you ask a question? When do you ask a question? And when do you basically bury the question for maybe forever? Um, dealing with parents, athletic directors, referees, opposing coaches, athletes, you have to learn how to communicate with the individual person, the classic know your audience, right? And I, you know, it's not easy as a coach because you become single-minded sometimes in your quest for you know, competition, excellence, and that sort of thing. And you can easily lose sight of the importance of treating each person that you deal with on their own terms. Not, not necessarily that you acquiesce. And I would tell my players, look, I'm not, I may not agree with you. I may not basically give you what you want, but I'll listen to you. You know, and I'll, I'll hear you out. And, that, you know, it's hard at that level, really hard to get teenagers to open up. I mean, you think they're listening to you, but they're, they're off somewhere else, man. Uh, or, they're, or they're basically yesing you to death. Yes, coach, sure, coach, yes, coach, and then they're gone. Um, you have to learn how to, to reach them. And I think that does apply to, to writing with memoir clients who 
are pretty all over the map emotionally and intellectually. Mm-hmm. Is advocacy something that you can learn or is it something that's just uh, ingrained in you as a person? And if it can be learned, what are some of the things you can do to, to uh, flex that muscle, if you will? Oh, you're, you're, that's a big topic, actually. Because, first of all, the answer to your threshold question is absolutely can be learned. But no question about it in my mind. Um, I mean, I wouldn't make it a, a sort of cornerstone of my coaching if I didn't think that. Um, but, you know, there, there are professionals like life coaches uh, and the like who, who um, specialize in the very question you put, you know, how do you get people to, to you know, uh, put themselves first when they need to and not, you know, basically kowtow and, you know, shrink into the, into the shadows of life. Um, I think for me, as a coach, and then I'll, I'll answer it as a memoirist, um, is really understanding that there are blockades between you and your, your players and the people you're dealing with, that they come, they come with a different agenda, and you just have to find a way um, to let them find, you know, to dig deep and find out what they need. I think that that's where listening skills are huge. Um, and I don't think you could have a, if you have a, you know, an important issue, um, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll give you a quick example in a second. You might have to go back to the well a couple of times on it to, to get them at, to get them to feel comfortable, but you, you have to create an environment where they, where they are well judged. You have to create an environment where they you really, they do feel you respect their point of view. Um, I once got a phone call literally after 10 at night at home from a, from a parent. And of course I was freaked out just to get a call that late. And he told me that his daughter who I coached was in a funk, which I knew because I saw how she had been playing the last couple of days. She was our star player, by the way. And he couldn't figure it out and da 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 And could I deal with it? And I said, well, you need to get her to come talk to me. This was the self-advocacy point. He goes, well, I can't do that, coach. I don't want her to know I called you. <laughs> I said, you put me between a rock and a hard place. I said, you've got to figure that out. You're a dad. You figure out a way to get her to come see me, and I'll take it from there. <clears throat> and he did that, and she did come to me eventually that week, and we sat down, and, she t- and, and we got into a discussion. I just let her emote because I needed to figure out what was triggering her. Clearly – she had perceived something about my handling of her, which was completely wrong. So she had been operating on the false assumption that whole week. And the more she thought about it, the worse she felt. Um, and so it took a while, but eventually it turned out that she said, well, I thought you did this and that. And I said, no, no, that's not what happened. Let me tell you why I did what I did. And I explained it all. So it was a process of one, getting her into the room to talk, to be courageous enough to advocate, inquire and then to figure out a way to working with her to figure out what was really going on with her, which we did. So in memoir writing, it's, it's not dissimilar. I mean, um, sometimes people just don't want to go certain places. And I think you, know, you have to figure out how hard do I push? I mean, I've had clients say, that's enough, Michael. And, you know, okay, okay, I'm backing off, you know. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't come back to it down the road. Because part of the great thing about memoir writing is the trust you build between you and your client. And the fact that they, if you can establish for them that you're not judging them. You know, once I decide to do a book, I'm not judging anything in your life. You know, that's not my job. My job is to give expression to your story. If I have a major issue with things you've done, yeah, I won't, I won't take the job, you know, but once I'm in, I'm in. And so the process of working with the client requires the ability, like I said earlier, as to how to ask questions when they ask them, but also to make sure they understand you're not judging them, that they can, that they can basically be transparent. One of the great things about working with Joan Barnes, you mentioned earlier, she was already that way. She was transparent. 
Um, not all clients are that way. They have to trust you. They have to believe that um, you won't think less of them for telling you what they feel. Um, and, and, and I think that's the key. And eventually, over time, people open up and they, and they, and they let you in. And then you could do the better jobs to write their story. And so how do you build that trust with your clients? I think that you ask your questions and you let the answers just fall. And if you need to follow up, you follow up. Um, but you don't in any way intimate that you're disagreeing with them. And that's not easy sometimes because you do want to challenge them. You know, the, the true memoir, um, true crime memoir client that I, I've been working with this year, um, it's been a pretty heavy experience because she's writing about, you know, the death of her father and the rape and kidnapping of her mother. And um, she's, and she's pretty transparent, but she's also tough. And there will be times when I feel, no, I can't let that go. I got I to gotta, I gotta make her accountable with that. But I think you have to pick your spots. I think if you, if it sounds like the process is more about you than it is about them, you're in big trouble. So I think you have to be, what is another expression I have for myself, which is you have to be a little bit of a fly on your own wall. You have to understand the dynamic that's happening between you and your memoir client, um, making sure they feel comfortable, making sure that you affirm them when you can and that you ask them about how they feel um, and that you're inquisitive and that there's no sort of kind of, you know, edge to your, your questions, mm. having a hidden agenda. I mean, I think it's a matter of skill about how you ask a question in a way that doesn't appear like you're judging them. It's, you know, there's, I don't know if there's any easy answer to your question other than understanding that you have to be completely aware of the dynamic constantly. That's the fly on your own wall thing. And then, and then let, it, let it play out. I think that the more you do that, I'm, for example, I'm working with a Marine about his time in Vietnam. Hmm. And he actually, I'm the second writer. Hmm. Um, and the reason he, I actually interviewed him for my novel. And while we, and we got, when we, we connected, and since I was, a, I'm a veteran also, um, I had some instant respect with him, even though I maybe hadn't earned it yet. Um, but over time, you know, given the PTSD quality of the experience, um, he's opened up. But I think he, even though he respected me because I was a veteran, even though we connected well when I interviewed him about my novel, um, which has you know, five military chapters in it, uh, it took a while for him to really feel at ease so that he could tell me everything. And so I just think you have to, it doesn't happen right away. I think it just, you just, you have to be constantly aware of it. And I think and I, we're all challenged as writers because we have egos that sometimes get in the way because, you know, I'll write something and I'll think, oh my God, this is so good. <laughs> then the client will say, I can't, I can't, I can't say that. It's not me or I don't like that. And like, the issue is, what the fuck, man? <laughs> what are you telling me? I'm the professional, but no, that's where you need to check yourself. That's where you need to know that you're in the service business. That's where you need to be on that. You, want to, you don't want to rupture the trust you're building with this person. You want to respect this is their book. You know, I have a term in all my contracts that I, I don't need to be asked to put in, which is they have final say on all content. And I encourage them. I said, look, don't hold back. We don't have to keep everything in there, but we can't write the best book we can write unless I know everything. You know, if you wanted to, like, for example, on the, in the true crime memoir, she just took out a page of stuff that she thought would embarrass certain people. But when, she, when we put it in at first, she, was, she, she loved it. You know, she, oh, my God, I love this, right? Uh, but over, the, over time, she decided, no, it's not a right thing to do. That's the kind of patience you have to have. With, you know, even though I thought, oh, my God, I love this piece, I, I didn't want to take it out in terms of a literary, you know, contribution, but that was a, it was a no-brainer. It was like, okay, it's out. So I think uh, we'll segue to your 
your fiction book that's uh, upcoming. It's called Truth is in the House. Can you tell us a little bit about that book, what the plot is and synopsis? Well, let me tell you how it came to be because it had a circuitous route. Um, okay. I grew up in the South Bronx and in a neighborhood called Highbridge. And um, I loved growing up uh, there in the streets because we had, you know, in those days, we made our own rules in the streets. You know, we lived in the streets. We played street games. We had our own culture. Um, it was a separate existence apart from school and family. Um, and I was really proud of growing up there. Um, I wanted to write a book that celebrated my neighborhood in some way. And I thought I would do it from a fictional standpoint. So it should give me more leeway to, to tell stories and stuff. And I had some, I had some false starts. And then I decided, you know, I'm just going to start interviewing people and see where that goes. So I interviewed two guys who I grew up with but who I hadn't seen in 50 years. And I only connected with them through Facebook. And I wrote them both and said that I was coming to New York. I was writing this book and I wonder if they would sit with me uh, and just talk to me for a couple of hours. So we met the, th the three of us. And by the way, this was the only interview I did for the book that was more than one person. I did for about 30 interviews for the book. This was the only time I did it with two people. And we actually met for four hours. Oh. And these guys were master storytellers. That was great. I was, I was just, you know, I'd ask a question and let them go for 10 minutes. And they told me about twin homicides that had occurred in May of 1970 in the neighborhood. And the two ki kids who were killed, I knew. But I'd never heard of the homicides because in May of 70, I was in the military when I came out of the military, I didn't move back to the neighborhood because my parents had moved to a different place in the Bronx. So I, I never went back to, I mean, I've been back to the neighborhood since, but in terms of coming home at the, at the age of 21, I was just completely blown away by what I heard. And it was a racially uh, infused um, fight that led to the homicides in a bar that I knew of uh, in the neighborhood. And so, for some reason, I couldn't get it out of my mind. And, and uh, so I actually did some research, found some newspaper article, and then I got in touch with the local precinct on, on a lark. And they actually were cooperative, cooperative with me and they assigned a detective to it and they wound up finding the cold file from 1970. Wow. So now I had, and they wouldn't give it to me direct because I had to do a public records act request, but they basically told me what was in it, which is all I needed. Mm. So who, I actually got, I actually tried to find the uh, people, the perpetrators. Um, that's a whole other story, but I had these two murders and, and, and there was two white kids killed by a couple of um, African-Americans in the neighborhood uh, over a silly, stupid thing. Silly, stupid thing. But it was reflective of the racial tension in the neighborhood in 1970, where the neighborhood was changing uh, rapidly. Uh, white flight was occurring and that sort of thing. And so now I had this event. And so I began to backfill. And long story short, I created two main characters, one white, one black. The white character emigrates from Ireland to Manhattan with his family in the 1950s and um, has a really tragic thing happen to him. The black character is born in, in, in Mississippi and has a tragic thing happen to him. Eventually, the, they both wind up in the Bronx. The, the white character in my neighborhood and the other character, his family migrates from Mississippi in the early 60s um, to a neighborhood adjoining mine. And basically, and the book really evolves organically from there. Um, two kids uh, from, from disparate backgrounds and cultures 
um, whose character and personalities are formed by what happened to them tragically. And they begin to have intersecting lives in the Bronx, in the Marines, in Vietnam. And then later they have this denouement moment at the bar where the homicides take place. Mm. Um, and, and so, and, and the, the book has a major quality of historical fiction. I mean, there's actual, you know, data and quotes from like, you know, Lyndon Johnson and Martin Luther King and that sort of thing. Um, General Westmoreland who led the fight in Vietnam for the United States. And I interviewed, like I said, about 30 different people, most of whom I didn't know. You know, I interviewed a bunch of Marines I got introduced to who fought at the time. Um, I, I interviewed uh, emergency room doctors because I have a scene in the emergency room. Um, I interviewed nurses who served in Vietnam. I interviewed doctors who, who served in Vietnam. I interviewed um, various people who knew about the neighborhood that I had never met before. One of my, one of the, what the main, the black character goes to a high school in the Bronx where a friend of mine went to as an athlete and basketball player. So I, I kind of modeled, you know, I just did stuff like that. And at the end of the day, it's a spiritual journey for both of these men who uh, wind up having a, a final um, sort of intersection when they're older um, about who they are, how they relate to each other and what the and power of human connection. What's harder to write, fiction or memoir? I'm sorry? What's, what, which was harder to write, the fiction book or, the, or a memoir? <sighs> I'm gonna give you a tried answer and then try and be better. <laughs> I don't find any of this hard. Just to be clear, um, I mean, it takes time, but I just love the process so much that to me, it's just fun. But in terms of relative, I think that um, memoir writing is a little more difficult hmm. because with, with writing the novel, and I'm gonna be, and I'm, this is where I'm headed, I'm gonna be doing more fiction. You don't have the same boundaries of, of you have to worry about. I mean, you wanna have truth in the essence of your points of view, but you have more creativity on your scenes, episodes, character development. And um, um, I just felt, you know, I was really shocked. You know, I, was, I had read the book, maybe you know of it, On Writing by Stephen King. And somewhere in there, King writes how he doesn't really have this great vision for his books. He just kind of sits down and I, and I read that, I, I said, come on. Easy for you to say, you know, you're Stephen King, right? But that's exactly how my novel evolved. Every time I would finish a chapter, I'd say, okay, this is where we are, folks. What's the next logical place to go? What, what, how, we do, how do we build on where the characters are now? And it, and it definitely, that's how it worked. And even though I did start with that one chapter about the bar, I built a backfield, but other than that, it was organic. And I felt really free doing that. With memoir, you have an obligation to capture not only someone's story accurately and well, but in their voice. So there is a, there's a pressure to perform that is different. And if it, not that it's, it's still fun, but it's, it's harder to do, I think. So I'm gonna wrap it up with one last question. And this is something I ask all my guests. And that is, do you have a favorite book or maybe perhaps a book that you like to gift often? Oh, uh, you know, you asked me that in an email and I, that's a really unfair question. I know, I know it is. Writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, reader. you can name a couple. I made a list. Because I, I, it caused me to ask this question to myself. Um, how would I how would I decide what's my favorite book or books? And so I thought, I went back and thought about, and it's hard to remember all the books you've read, right? But mm. the books that stayed with me, that I, that I could read more, more than once. I, I, I came up with eight books. Can I tell you them? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay, so um, Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. Mm-hmm. 
Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. And I would say uh, parenthetically that I've read everything that Dickens has wrote. Um, I have a complete uh, antique collection. The next one might surprise you. Um, Autobiography Malcolm X by Alex Haley. A book that really changed me, I should point out. Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut. Good one, yeah. The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, whose works I also have devoured. And who, by the way, is my favorite writer. Maybe that's the answer, I guess. And then The World According to Goff by John Irvin. Mm. So I know I said that was going to be the last question, but I do have a follow-up, and that's why, why choose those eight? Well, What's special I, about those? I intimated, um, I think... I try to find a thread, by the way, when I, when I put them on paper, I said, what's common about these works? And I think they're all a little edgy. They're all a little out of the norm. They're all a little crazy. I mean, you don't get any crazier than Confederacy of Dunces or Catch-22, although Catch-22 has a powerful political message. Mm. Um, I just think that they're out of the mainstream, you know, um, I've enjoyed so many different books, but these books, I felt a, a kinship with the story. I mean, with, with the Malcolm X book, and I also read that, by the way, when I was doing the undergraduate equivalent of a thesis on his life. So I was really, um, I, I devoured all the speeches and writings, and, and this book was important for that. But, but I think these books, um, I wouldn't say they're counterculture, but there's some counterculture aspect to them. And maybe that's the best way. I mean, I don't know if that would apply to all of them, but, um, but most of them, I think. So I just think that they're um, outside the box. Not main, I, mainstream. I bet if you, look at, if you look at a list of somebody's tally of the most popular books of all time, they'd be somewhere on there. So they're not completely out of the mainstream, obviously. But uh, I just think that the characters in those books really appeal to me. You know, the, the point of view, the attitudes, of an edge. Awesome. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being on the show today. For people who want to reach out, where can they find you? Well, I'm actually redoing my website, but my web, they can certainly find me in my email. I'm happy to hear from everybody who's interested in writing. I mean, I, one of the things I like to do when I, somebody posts something that I can help with, I tell them to call me. So I like talking about it. So my, my email address is michael at michaelcafino.com. And that's the direct way. And I'm happy to get on the phone with people if they want to talk about their writing or if someone has a ghosting project they want to explore with me, obviously I'm happy to do that. And my website is, you know, michaelcafino.com. Um, but it's, it's still there. It's going to be changed in the next couple of months, but. Awesome. Check me out. And when is your book coming out? We just changed the release date to April 30 um, of next year. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, and we'll, we'll be involved in the same pre-order stuff that normally happens. Perfect. Uh, well, thank you, Michael, uh, and enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thank you for the opportunity. Take care. All right. Bye. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Publishing for Profit. Please like and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.